Welcome to World Footprints Radio, the show where we celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage. Featuring your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Now, World Footprints Radio. Hi, everyone. Welcome to World Footprints Radio. We are so happy to bring you today's show uh, because it's we're really taking a remarkable journey to different places we haven't spoke about before. Today's show is a journey into black history and human rights. First, we'll head to the historic Elgin settlement, known today as the town of Buxton in Ontario, Canada. Local historians Brian and Shannon Prince will share how Buxton developed from a safe haven for fugitive slaves to a thriving town that actively preserves its rich history. Then World Footprints has joined with CNN and the BBC to partner with the United Nations Global Initiative to fight human trafficking. We'll be joined by our partners from Austria, Livia Wagner and Cyria Gastelum, to discuss this global issue, why human trafficking is the largest criminal industry in the world, and how the travel community can help in the fight against it. And author and educator Paula Young Shelton shares a special civil rights story about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., her dad, former U.N. ambassador, Atlanta mayor, and civil rights activist Andrew Young, in her children's book, Child of the Civil Rights Movement, Finally, we'll share how you can experience the Civil Rights Trail on an upcoming educational tour with James Stowe of the Montgomery County, Maryland Office of Civil Rights. And as always, if you have a question or a comment, write to us at comments at worldfootprints.com. We look forward to connecting with you through our multiple social networks, including Facebook, and our other broadcast platforms like Stitcher, a free mobile app that lets you listen to World Footprints through your mobile device and on the go. You can join us on all of our social networks, sign up for our newsletters, and enjoy the many resources we have available on our website at worldfootprints.com. After the War of 1812, Canada's reputation as a safe haven for slaves grew as fugitive slaves fled by the thousands to planned settlements like the Elgin Settlement, also known as Buxton, located in Ontario. This community still exists today, and we're very fortunate to have two longtime and learned residents from the historic settlement with us. Brian and Shannon Prince continue to farm the land of their ancestors and preserve the history of this important community. Welcome, Brian and Shannon, to World Footprints. Thank you. Oh, thanks for having us, Tanya. <laughs> Brian, uh, Buxton was one of four planned settlements for fugitive slaves in Canada, and its founder, Reverend William King, a white man actually, fought other white settlers to establish this community. Tell us a little bit about this history and give us a little bit of this background here. Reverend King was quite a remarkable man. He was born in Ireland, but he moved to the States as a young man, and he eventually moved to Louisiana, where he married into a slaveholding family. Um, Through a series of circumstances, he acquired 15 slaves. And in Louisiana at that time, you couldn't legally emancipate your slaves. So he sought a place where he could set them free and came to Canada um, with the help of some investors and anti-slavery sympathizers, formed an association which purchased 9,000 acres of barren land. What, what, was, the t- what was the timeline on this? What, what year did this take place? or what? This was in the late 40s as he was seeking it out, mm-hmm. and it was actually 1849 when he eventually moved here brought his slaves along with him, um, freed them, and then turned the 9,000 acres, made it available to other runaway slaves and free blacks. And so as time went on up until the Civil Civil War, 
Buxton became the largest of those planned settlements. The population would have been about 1,200 people. At, at I understand, too, that Reverend King considered education an imperative for, for the settlers, and so it wasn't just, uh, Elgin wasn't just a safe haven, but it was, he was actually building a, um, a working community, functional community with, with the schools. Well, when, when Reverend King arrived in the settlement, um, he secured, actually, when he founded the area, there were three principles that he based it on. Once the land was secured, um, and that he had, and then there was the education and religion. Um, and religion was very, very important. Not only was he a minister, but it was their faith that sustained um, those people on that perilous journey to freedom. And the education, because blacks were denied one in the South. So it was very important that they have one when they arrived here. And he also believed that if blacks were given the, those same opportunities as whites, as whites, uh, they could become self-sufficient and self-sustaining, um, even though there was quite a bit of opposition in the beginning. And ironically, it was that educational system that brought down a lot of those racial barriers. When Reverend King took um, his former slaves to the district or common school, it was closed. And so he decided to build, he and several people in the area, decided to build one on his own property. And when the doors were open, he invited everyone to come. It didn't matter, you know, the color of your skin. You were welcome to attend his school. So when the doors were open, there were 14 black children and two white children that attended that school. And within a year, there were more white, there were more children wanting to, to go to Reverend King's school now. Some of the whites who were opposed to this settlement being formed now we're seeking permission from Reverend King to have their children attend this school where the quality of education was being taught. So, you know, it's okay for Mary to go to school with a black child now and to be taught by a black teacher. Shannon, give us a sense of where Buxton is in Ontario relative to some of the other communities such as uh, Toronto and Windsor. We are um, 45 minutes um, east of of Windsor, right, Brian? Yes. <laughs> and three hours um, from Toronto. So we're about an hour from, from Detroit, Michigan. Buxton, I guess because when um, uh, the Fugitive Slave Law was passed in the United States in 1850, um, even though slave catchers were not allowed to come into Canada, the settlements along the Detroit River, um, the, um, they were, you know, very accessible to slave catchers, Windsor and Detroit and Niagara and Buffalo. So they were risking a lot by coming this far north. Now, when Buxton was founded, how many people settled the community at first? There was sort of a gradual influx of people. Um, Within a couple of years, there were 200 families. Um, By 1857, I think there were 300 families. And the population got to be about 1,200 people by the time the Civil War began. But we spoke about the 9,000 acres that formed the settlement, but actually the area immediately surrounding the settlement was also predominantly black. So there was probably closer to, um, well, well over 5,000 acres um, settled by black families who thought of Buxton as their center. They went to 
school there. They went to church there. They were part of that whole social community. Shannon, when you were talking about Reverend King, and we got a real sense of what kind of man he was, but he also imposed some pretty strict standards on those who came in terms of prohibiting alcohol and requiring settlers there to own their land. What was behind these rules? Number one, when they arrived here, um, they had... um, they had a hard. They had to deal with the concept of being free. Number one, uh, because they had been enslaved probably most of their lives, and now suddenly they were free. That term to them did not really mean anything until they realized that yes, you do. You know, own yourself. You own your property. You own your land. And now, you you know, you're working for yourself. So there was some structure there for them. But also the fact that because there was that opposition in the beginning, Reverend King basically wanted to dispel those myths in the outlying area that blacks were lazy, uneducated, and dirty. And yes, they could become self-sufficient and self-sustaining. And those rules were established to say, yes, they can do this. And it was touted as one of the most successful settlements in Canada West at the time. And the rules, they, they adhered to them very well, um, like the flower gardens. You know, um, there were competitions throughout the settlement to see who had the best flower garden. And there was a strong sense of community as well that was instilled in everyone. So when you arrived, everyone received those 50 acres, but sh- and you were charged $2.50 an acre, mm-hmm. and you had 10 years, within 10 years, to pay that off. Um, but, but the community would come and help you clear your 50 acres and then build your home and then go to the next person who arrived and so on and so on. Shannon or, or Brian, I'll just open this up to either one of you. Can you talk a little bit about Canada's role in the Underground Railroad? Canada is certainly an interesting um, uh, place. Um, one story that is, is little known and seldom talked about was there was indeed slavery here in Canada. And it did not end until Britain abolished it throughout its empire in 1834. So um, just sort of as an aside, there are interesting stories about slaves here in Canada escaping over to Michigan and Ohio, the Northwest Territory of, of the U.S., because in theory there was no slavery there. So you have that sort of uh, reverse underground railroad, slaves mm-hmm. escaping from Canada to the United States. But... But after 1834 especially, um, Canada was viewed as the place where blacks could come and truly be free. And we're learning more and more all all the time about how widespread the Underground Railroad Network was. And um, some of the stories are familiar to a lot of your listeners, um, William Still in particular in Philadelphia and his network. But there were certainly networks um, in New York, Ohio, uh, Washington, D.C., um, Indiana, Michigan, Illinois. And they are are very much connected with a sort of a handful of anti-slavery activists here in Canada. And it's very interesting as you scan the old newspapers of the day, the minutes of the anti-slavery societies, and individual letters and diaries that survived. Um, it's interesting to see how closely connected those agents, those abolitionists were in Canada 
end in the United States. And, and I wanted to circle back to um, a, a point that Shannon raised earlier about the Fugitive Slave Law, which was passed in, in 1850. I'm just trying to give our listeners a sense how the Fugitive Slave Law impacted really the black exodus to Canada and perhaps the migration back from, from Canada back to, to the United States. How did that play a role? In- the, um, prior to 1850, there actually was a Fugitive Slave Act of 1793, but as time went on, it wasn't quite as strictly enforced, and it didn't have the teeth in it that the 1850 um, Fugitive Slave Law had. When that was passed, there was a terror that sort of uh, flowed throughout the northern states. Blacks who had perhaps been free for generations were not safe. They were, you'll often read stories of them being kidnapped and sent into slavery. And then, of course, there were a great many who were fugitive slaves who had fled um, some of the year or two or ten in the northern states. And the teeth of the law demanded that the, the regular citizen be a part of capturing runaway slaves. There were fines and threatened jail sentences for interfering with the capture of runaways. There were incentives for judges to rule that um, a black brought before them was a was indeed a runaway slave. The judge would get ten dollars if he ruled it was a runaway. Mm-hmm. He would get five dollars if he ruled the person was free. And to make matters worse, blacks were not allowed to testify on their own behalf. So there is a shudder that goes throughout the throughout the black communities in the north and a flood begins into Canada at that point. Shannon, as the curator of the Buxton National Historical Site and Museum, you've got a special role to play in telling the story of, of Buxton from, from the racial relationships between the freed blacks to the English Canadians there. What artifacts and exhibits speak to the story of this town? One of the most powerful artifacts that we have at the museum are original shackles. We have original children and adult ankle shackles. Mm. And they speak volumes to everyone who walks through those doors. Um, The emotions they evoke when people pick them up, it's just, you know, uh, some stand there silently weeping, others, you know, they can't pick them up because they are so powerful and they are reminders of the past. Uh, but, you know, I do remind them that, you know, this has happened and it is something that we should not forget. And I see that with students, especially when they come through. Um, they, they, you know, you can talk about it, you can read about it. And when they actually pick them up, you know, they will stand there and think like, wow, you know, this did come off a child. You know, and it possibly could be the same age, you know, or, you know, because they were children, you know. So it's just really interesting to see. And we also have the 1861 schoolhouse, which was the third school that was built in the settlement. And to take people into that school, again, it's one of those memorable experiences because they can um, (laughs) reflect on on the past, but also for the, the students that are coming in, it's like, wow. You know, people actually, you know, you know, walk through those doors and walk on that 1862 terrazzo. So it's, 
you know, we're very, you know, blessed to have those. And then the resources also. <laughs> Brian, coming back to the institution of slavery in Canada, was slavery different in Canada versus uh, the American South or even in parts of the United States, such as Missouri, where relationships between slaves and their owners were different? Well, I, I, think, I, I think it was very different from what most of us think of as slavery in the South. I think it's, it, it perhaps more closely parallels when, when there was slavery in the northern states. Um, here there weren't the huge plantations that needed a, a big labor force. People often would have two or three slaves, um, perhaps a smaller family. Um, they were in a little bit closer proximity working in the house and in the barns and, and in, in the surrounding smaller farm, which is much different than the large cotton and sugarcane um, plantations that we think of in the South. So there were attachments. Um, but, but that's one of the, the most interesting things I find when I'm researching. And, and you see the interviews that were done with slaves, with former slaves. And it's quite incredible to me how often they will say how I miss the master or I, I miss the mistress. Hmm. I had an attachment to um, their children, and I would like to go back. And so there, there is that strange um, contradiction of uh, of the fear, the terror, the, the, the things we all think about in slavery, but then just those those human attachments. Um, quite something. <laughs> I I don't know how many people realize how important Canada was in that whole movement, you know, and in, in the, the emancipation of, of slaves and, and, and how much of our history is a collective history um, with other North American, well, with Canada. And, um, you know, and so I appreciate you guys uh, sharing, sharing your stories, your history. And I just want to kind of go back to... Um, the Buxton itself and, and how this community has developed over the years. It's, it's my understanding that Buxton uh, is the only surviving um, settlement back, you know, out of the, the uh, four settlements that were, uh, that were uh, organized uh, back then. Buxton is the only one that continues to exist. Is that correct? So a little bit hard to answer. I, I, I think we're a little bit distinct because Buxton was this large area with only blacks in it, um, where some of the other settlements, the, the blacks were sort of sprinkled among the, the people of European um, descent. Um, so we were more distinct geographically. Mm -hmm. And it, now Buxton has certainly changed since the Civil War. Um, there, there was quite an exodus back to the U.S., from um, Black Woods Freedoms came there, um, not only here in Buxton, but in uh, most parts of Canada. But um, Buxton has sort of shrunk. The, the 3,000 acres that was only settled by Blacks, uh, we have now sort of congregated in a smaller geographic circle uh, around the village of North Buxton. And as Shannon and I were growing up, it was still um, almost an all-black community. 
So um, it, it has changed a bit, um, but still, it, it's pretty distinct um, that, that there is still this black community that is um, that is distinct from the other. Well, thank you so much for, for sharing your story and for uh, preserving very important history. Uh, Brian and Shannon Prince, thank you so much for joining us on World Footprints. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you so much. After the break, the tragedy of human trafficking and its global impact. At the moment, 2.5 million people are enslaved in human trafficking. Next on World Footprints Radio. Hi, my name is Jennifer Jones and I'm from Glasgow in Scotland. And I, I love listening to the World Footprints Radio show online. Hi, I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. And I'm Ian Fitzpatrick. A few years ago, we decided to leave our respective legal practices to live a more purposeful travel life and help others leave positive footprints. World Footprints was born and was quickly recognized for its award-winning journalism. We've covered events from the Olympics to a Titanic expedition, and we've discussed conservation, environmental, and public diplomacy initiatives. Join us for award-winning radio and visit our website, worldfootprints.com, for daily travel deals and comprehensive travel information. Hi, my name is Eva. I'm from Fiji, and I love listening to World Footprints Radio. And now, more of World Footprints Radio with your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. Human trafficking is the largest and fastest growing criminal industry in the world. It's worth an estimated $32 billion each year, and it affects all ethnic groups, all genders, and all age groups across every country in the world. As responsible travelers, there's a lot we can do to fight this awful crime, from raising awareness to reporting suspected criminal activity and asking the right questions. World Footprints has recently partnered with the United Nations Global Initiative to Fight Human Trafficking, also known as UN GIFT, as part of our commitment to join this battle for human rights. We are pleased to introduce two of our UN GIFT partner representatives, Livia Wagner and Syria Gastelum, who will share some of the programs and resources available through UN GIFT to help you help fight crime. Welcome, ladies. Hi. Livia, I, I think many people would be surprised to learn how big an industry human trafficking is. And for those who may not be aware of this crime, please describe what it actually is. Give this, this horrible crime a face. Yeah, human trafficking is a global phenomenon. There is almost no country that is not related to human trafficking. And Almost every country in this world is either a source, a transit, or a destination country. That means when talking about human trafficking, we're having different forms of exploitation. I think that's very important to mention. One major form of exploitation is the sexual exploitation of women, girls, and also young boys or men. Another form of exploitation is uh, labor exploitation. That means people working in sweatshops, people being trafficked uh, from one country or within a country to being exploited um, related to labor issues. But of course, there are also many other forms of exploitation like forced marriage, organ trafficking, child soldiers, and begging, pickpocketing. So human trafficking has different forms of exploitation and um, 
all the all people that are trafficked are lured into a situation that they assume that they are going to be brought to a country or to another city within the same country to work, for instance, as a waitress, and then they have to face the situation that they're going to be exploited. Mm. So I think there are many different forms and many different stories. I think something else that would surprise some of our listeners is that it is the fastest growing criminal industry in in the world. Why is that? It's it's difficult to say um, because we don't have um, correct statistics or numbers because not every country has a legislation in place. So that's why very often people are victims of trafficking. But if there is no law against trafficking, then these people can or if people or traffickers cannot be convicted. So that's why it's difficult to say how many people UN GIFT launched in 2009 the first independent global report where 155 countries have been covered. Um, And this gives a slight indication of how many people have been trafficked and that this is a rising crime, let's say. We could also say that because it is a it is a crime, a global crime that is affected for some, by so many external factors such as, you know, when there's an economic uh, crisis, we can see probably indications that it, this could be related to increases in forced labor. Mm-hmm. We're living in a time where people are migrating that is, like they have never done it before. And this uh, condition of uh, illegal migration makes people vulnerable to human trafficking. So we have a different set of factors that are indicating that this crime is growing. And another another issue that relates to this is also that, fortunately, our awareness of it is growing. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, programs like yours and your audience will help us move towards this effort because the more, the more we're aware of it, the more we realize how big it is and how it is all around us. Syria, in, in terms of understanding human trafficking, there are a lot of misperceptions out there, a lot of people uh, don't really think of this as a global issue, associating it with uh, lower income and third world countries. Why do you think that's the case and what is it going to take to really get people to realize just how huge this issue is? Well, it, it is uh, interesting this that you mentioned because some studies um, indicate that, for example, the U.S. could be perhaps the country with most incidents of human trafficking. And it's, it's a tricky issue because, like, I, like, like my partner was saying, there are not many evidence-based statistics on the problem. But this is certainly not an issue that affects third world countries because, sure, in some cases, people from third world countries or developing countries are brought into developing countries to work. Mm-hmm. Um, they're brought in illegally. For example, we have the case of domestic servitude. Domestic servitude is when people are brought into, let's say, European countries or North America to work as maids and stay-home maids, and they end, they end up trapped in a situation where they're removed from their passports, they're obliged to stay, they have to work every day of the week, they are not paid their salaries, and and it also reflects on the, on the products that we use in developing countries. What are we buying? Where, where was it made? Who made it? And what kind of labor was used into it? And like I said, there's so many types of uh, or phases to human trafficking, like sexual exploitation. Sexual exploitation 
education. That is a problem that we can see almost everywhere in the world. In addition to the lack of awareness, one of the major barriers is how this crime is prosecuted or not being prosecuted in countries or cultural differences where people don't look at it as a crime or as a form of a serious social malaise. What is it going to take to uh, change that, uh, particularly on the law enforcement side? I think here, um, talking about the law enforcement, it's very important to focus on capacity building. As I was saying before, many countries don't have the legislation and they don't, um, they haven't signed the, the protocol, the so-called Palermo Protocol, um, which was elaborated by the UN. And by not having the legislation, people are not aware what trafficking is and, of course, cannot prosecute it. So I think the first step is to train law enforcement, to train um, police, border migration officers. So I think this is very, very important so that they know what trafficking is and how they can combat it or how they can prosecute it. But I think here the most important thing is, and that's also the nature about gift is, or about giving gift, is that uh, partnership is a crucial, crucial thing for combating trafficking. It's not just the state. Trafficking cannot be tackled just from one sector. That means by governments or by the private sector or by civil society organizations. It is something that has to be combat it jointly. That means all the different stakeholders have to work together. And of course, for us, it's a great opportunity to reach out to the broad public, like through your program, because this is how we can educate people and they can um, raise this with their own governments, that there is something to do also with the private sector, that People have to be more aware to buy responsible. I don't know if you've heard, but a few months ago, there was a, a man and a, a little boy, and I think it was either in our area in D.C. or Philadelphia. There's been two different accounts or reports about this, but they were running to the into the airport trying to catch a flight uh, from this quarter, the northeast quarter, down to West Palm Beach. And the ticket agent asked the man for the little boy's name, and he couldn't immediately tell uh, say his name. Instead, he rifled through papers to try to, to find something with his name on it, I suppose. And one of the passengers, fellow passengers behind him, who happens to be or happened to be a flight attendant, um, noticed this and thought this was quite quirky. And so when they were on the plane, uh, this uh, other passenger, she happened to sit next to them as well. She asked the little boy, so are you excited about going to Florida? And the little boy responded, he's nine years old, and he said, well, I thought we were going to North Carolina. And at that point, the, the fellow passenger uh, alerted the airlines and and they alerted the authorities in uh, in West Palm Beach, Florida, where they were flying to. Uh, and the man was arrested. And it turned out that this little boy was a victim of human trafficking. And so she was already trained or aware of signs. UN Gift, I know you have a lot of uh, resources and tools to help people look for the red flag signs and, and what have you. Can either one of you talk about the resources that you have available on your site? Yeah, we have elaborated specifically for the private sector a training material because we think that, of course, it's very important that the private sector and specifically the, the tourism um, and transportation sector is aware of human trafficking. And I think that the example that you gave now 
is a very good example showing that um, not just normal or regular passengers, but also the flight attendants um, or employees of any company, they can be, they should be aware of it. And then the next step is to alert um, the officials. So with this, what we have been implementing now, our e-learning tool on human trafficking for the private sector, we hope that we can get the message across to many different companies um, to train their staff and to see how themselves, how they themselves, they can um, they can get the message across, but also to to be to keep their eyes open. And I think for passengers, it's very very important to, of course, know about this and keep their eyes open because really, what you were saying, this can save a life, and I think that's very important. And and I think uh, something very for your audience to realize is that human beings who are being trafficked, human beings who are on their way to become slaves are traveling in the same planes, in the mm. same buses, yeah. in the same trains that we all do. I mean, I don't know how many times we have been sitting next to a person who was on its way to hell, and just because we were not aware or just because we didn't realize these signs, we missed the chance to save a life like this woman did. As we've been discussing this issue of human trafficking and its different forms, whether it's outright slavery, involuntary servitude, child exploitation, sex crimes, do we have a sense as to how much of the world's population is affected by this, is involved with this in, in, in terms of the scope of the problem? Well, we only have what is the official number. We have a number that says that at the moment 2.5 million people are enslaved in human trafficking. 2.5 million people. So we, we know that that uh, number can be double, triple, quadruple. Like I said, that's the official number, the number that we get from police reports, from convictions, from cases that uh, have actually been resolved. But the number, I mean, if we, we're comparing this industry to the drug industry, to the arms trade, it's so big that there are not really exact numbers that can give us an indication of really how many people are victims of human trafficking. Looking at our country, the United States, there's an estimated 17,500 uh, 17, people are trafficked into the U.S. each year. 800,000 people are trafficked worldwide. And I think I, I read somewhere where at this very moment, there's about uh, 12 point in total, 12.5 million people um, who are victims of human trafficking. And I think that number is astounding. I want to read this quote that I got from the U.S. Department of Justice website. Uh, it was taken from somebody who was arrested, and he's actually a, U a retired U.S. school teacher. And, and I just want to read this because it, it shows, in some ways, the mindset of these the, the, the perpetrators, uh, the criminals. And, and I, I was just quite shocked. And I want to get your, uh, your thoughts on this after, uh, after I read this quote. This US, retired U.S. school teacher says, and I quote, on this trip, I've had sex with a 14-year-old girl in Mexico and a 15-year-old in Colombia. I'm helping them financially. If they don't have sex with me, they may not have enough food. If someone has a problem with me doing this, let UNICEF feed them. 
unquote. Um, yeah, of course. We, we come across um, a lot of these, of these quotes and what people think, and um, they think that they're helping people, but we have to be very clear. It's a human rights violation in many, many different terms because a child is to be is a person until the age of 18, so it's sexual abuse, it's abuse of a person in many, many terms, and it's not right that this person is helping the person, this, the, the young girls, he's abusing them, full stop. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you know, as, as travelers and as global citizens, we have a responsibility every time we travel to not only be aware, but to spread awareness about this crime and act accordingly. And I'm encouraging uh, our listening audience today to talk to your family and friends and utilize the resources available to you on ungift.org and worldfootprints.org because you could save a life. And Livia in uh, Syria, I thank you so much for joining us today on World Footprints and, and sharing about the resources you have available to help all of us fight this horrible crime. Coming up, children's author Paula Young Shelton shares her stories about Dr. King in her new book, Child of the Civil Rights Movement. That was what was most important to him, and I really, truly believe that everything he did was to create a better world for them. Next on World Footprints Radio. Hi, my name is Jeannie. I am from Fiji. I love listening to World Footprints Radio. World Footprints Radio is an award-winning broadcast and leader in socially conscious travel. Hosts Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick bring you entertaining and informative interviews with well-known celebrities, newsmakers, authors and industry professionals. From environmental leaders like Bobby Kennedy Jr. and David Rockefeller Jr. to conservationists like actress Stephanie Powers and director Ken Burns. Tune in to hear travel journalism at its best. Visit unique places from around the world and stop by the worldfootprints.com website for comprehensive travel information including special daily travel deals. Hi, my name is Elaine and I'm from California and I like World Footprints Radio. And now, more of World Footprints Radio with your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back, I'm Ian Fitzpatrick, swimming with her Uncle Martin. That's how a young girl named Paula remembers Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Our journey on the Civil Rights Trail for Black History Month brings a human side to the icons of the Civil Rights Movement thanks to Paula Young Shelton, the daughter of former UN Ambassador and Atlanta Mayor Andrew Young. She shares her story in a book for kids, Child of the Civil Rights Movement. Paula talks about the civil rights family and how food brought everyone together in her home as a child as she reads a passage from her book. Like all families, we'd have dinner together. And since there were so few restaurants that served African Americans, we would often eat at friends' houses. We might walk around the corner to Uncle Ralph and Aunt Juanita's or go to Uncle Martin and Aunt Coretta's. Or everyone would come to our house. One night, when it was our turn to host, I sat under the kitchen table, watching and listening. Food, Paula tells us, made the freedom fighters feel right at home when they came to stay at our house in Atlanta. But that was, a, that was the thing that brought us all together. And um, you know, my mother's macaroni and cheese was famous. <laughs> and my father would 
always bring somebody else home for dinner. At the last minute, he would bring somebody else. And she didn't bat an eye. It was just always, it just seemed like there was always room at our table. There was always enough for everyone. And so I don't remember a lot. I was very young. I don't remember a lot of exactly what happened. But the feeling of community and family was just really strong. And I definitely felt a level of comfort, even though there were constantly strangers in our house all the time. Because you couldn't stay at hotels, so if people were in town protesting, um, they'd come sleep on our floor. We'd wake up in the morning, there'd be somebody camped out in the living room. And there were always people coming through our house. And that was a really good feeling for me. I felt good about that. Dr. Ting loved the debates he had with other leaders, which Paula described as a symphony. With everyone trying to talk at once, I thought they sounded just like instruments tuning up before a concert. Blackwell, the professor, was like a trombone, so smooth, clearly presenting the facts. Jose ambled around the table in his overalls, tooting like a tuba. I was in Selma last time, and we got to go back. Although the instrument analogy Paula uses in her book is helpful to kids to understand the intensity of the debate among the civil rights leadership, this was all part of a plan by Dr. King to encourage healthy, vigorous debate and build consensus. The instruments, the way that my father describes their meetings is that he says Dr. King would not talk a lot in the meetings and that um, the only time Dr. King would get mad at him is when he agreed with everybody else because he wanted those different opinions. He wanted to hear all of those points of view and then he would make a decision. And so that's sort of, uh, the, the symphony was sort of my image of those discussions that everyone has a part to play and everybody had very strong opinions. Um, but Dr. King would just kind of take it all in and then One of the goals Paula had for the book was to show a lighter human side of Dr. King, which she does with her swimming story. Uncle Martin had a big, broad smile and eyes that twinkled. Come here, girl, he'd say, whenever our families would meet at one of the only pools for African Americans in Atlanta, the Ollie Street YMCA. Are you ready to get in that water and teach me how to swim? Run, I would run as fast as my skinny little legs could carry me. Run and leap, leap into his wide open arms and fly. No! I would scream and laugh. My arms clasped tightly around his neck as he pretended to throw me in. Uncle Martin was really my uncle. Not by now. Paula elaborates further on the side of Dr. King she got to see as a child. And that was really one of my primary goals was to make him a human being. And, you know, we, we know the holiday and we think of him as a statue or, I mean, he's just this icon. But I don't think that children know him as a human being. And I really wanted to humanize him and let them see him as a person. And that picture of him holding out his arms. Um, The illustrator, Raul Colon, I think did a a fabulous job with the book. And I did not describe that to him, but when I saw the picture, that was exactly how I remember Dr. King. That whenever we would come around, he 
was, you know, he wanted to play with us. He was, he loved children. And in fact, my father says that the first time he actually met Dr. King, they had both just become new fathers. And he had been hearing about Dr. King, and he was so excited to talk to him and, you know, wanted to ask him about his political views, and all he wanted to talk about was his new baby. And it just, you know, that was what was most important to him, and I really, truly believe that everything he did was to create a better world for them. Because of her father's career in civil rights and as a UN ambassador, Paula's life journey has been remarkable as a global citizen. Well, I did, uh, I went, grew up in Atlanta, and then my father went to the United Nations, and we moved to New York, so I spent a couple of years of high school in New York, which the United Nations high school there, and was able to do a little bit of traveling with him. It was always interesting um, when we were in New York to have leaders from other countries, uh, particularly African countries, to come to our house, and so I would be exposed to that, and that was fascinating to see these other leaders from all over the world coming in, and to meet kids whose parents were in the UN and, and had these sort of international experiences. And uh, I went to college in North Carolina because I really wanted to get back to the South. The South is my home. And, but after that, I decided I wanted to teach. And so I started looking for different way, places that I could go experiment with teaching, really. And I ended up going to Uganda, a village uh, called Gulu in Uganda. And I taught seventh and eighth graders. And that was probably the most uh, incredible experience of my life. I spent about a year there. I had uh, about 60 kids in a class, and they walked to the school barefoot, um, and I never had a discipline problem. <laughs> I've been, you know, there were 60 kids eager to learn, and the biggest problem was getting them to give their opinions because they were just so used to sitting and listening and doing whatever the teacher said. And so that was an incredible experience for me. And then after that, I came back to the United States and continued to teach in Atlanta and Washington. And because of her dad and Dr. King, Paula learned some important life lessons that are powerful not only for kids, but for adults. Well, I think, um, I think getting to know people on an individual basis, we're so quick to make judgments about groups of people and, and stereotypes about people, and I think Getting to know individuals is one of the most important things to understand more about a person. And also being able to, to know their story. And um, this is part of why I wanted to tell this story was to uh, help children understand what happened during that period of time, but also to just share what it was like for a child at that time, the kind of things that I experienced. And as I go around, I really encourage others to share their experiences with that same period of time or just being able to pass down your story to your children helps them understand historical events so much better and clearer and make a personal connection to it. Um, the other thing that I'll, I believe that I've learned from Dr. King and particularly my father is that he always said that you can do anything in the world if you don't care who gets the credit for it. And Dr. King got lots of credit for uh, bringing about dramatic change in this country. Uh, but there were so many other people that sacrificed their lives and their time and their energy 
to make this change come about. And we don't know their names. And that's why at, at our, the dinner table, I wanted to introduce some of those people to children. And in the back of the book, I have uh, little biographies about some of the folks that I knew personally. But we can do anything if we're not concerned about you know, making sure that I get the credit for it. That as long as we're willing to make um, that sacrifice and to help others, we can think about dramatic Coming up, we'll tell you how you can experience the Civil Rights Trail. The issue in Selma was, of course, voters' rights. Uh, the issue, of course, uh, in Montgomery was public transportation, public accommodations. Next on World Footprints Radio. Hi, my name's Catherine from France, and I love listening to World Footprints Radio. Join award-winning World Footprints Radio, a leader in socially conscious travel, for inspiring, entertaining, and educational shows. Meet well-known guests like Bobby Kennedy Jr., actress Stephanie Powers, and director Ken Burns, along with other celebrities, newsmakers, and industry professionals who celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage, and support public diplomacy initiatives. Travel with us to unique places around the world and join us on our efforts to raise awareness about environmental, conservation, and human rights issues and learn what you can do to leave positive footprints one step at a time. Also visit our interactive and informative website at worldfootprints.com. Hi, my name is Anna. I'm from Romania. Make sure you don't miss the World Footprint Radio every Tuesday. You're listening to World Footprints Radio, awarded as the best travel audio podcast by the North American Travel Journalists Association. Here's Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. Georgia and Alabama are two of the places Paula Young Shelton recounts in her book and are among the places the 2011 Civil Rights Educational Freedom Tour will visit. The Office of Human Rights of Montgomery County, Maryland, is sponsoring this tour from April 18th through the 23rd, and here to tell us about it is a director of the Montgomery County Office of Human Rights, James Stowe. Director Stowe, welcome to World Footprints. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Now, I understand you're getting ready to plan a, a trip, a civil rights trip, uh, travel the civil rights trail for the uh, third time. Uh, in a row, and uh, and uh, you'll be starting uh, where specifically? Well, we'll be leaving here on the 18th of April. Here being the uh, uh, city of Rockville, uh, Rockville Town Plaza. Uh, and from Rockville, we'll be heading down south, and our first stop will be Atlanta. Uh, of course, the birthplace of Dr. King, and uh, so many things that happened there in the sweet Auburn community uh, around Ebenezer Baptist Church and so forth. So we're looking forward to that being our first stop. From there, we'll leave headed down to Tuskegee, Alabama, uh, where the famed Tuskegee Airmen were based uh, and were obviously very crucial to our war efforts in World War II. Uh, also, the uh, founder, uh, Booker T. Washington, uh, his whole idea about this idea of involving persons with talents to be brought to an agricultural base uh, comes out of the Tuskegee experience and so forth. So we'll be able to see a little bit of that and a marvelous university now. Uh, in Tuskegee, and also George Washington Carver, of course, was the famed, famed scientist, uh, whose laboratory, by the way, is exactly like he left it prior to his death, uh, and a fabulous thing there, so it's a very exciting part of our tour. We'll leave there and then head then to Montgomery, Alabama, as we know, the Montgomery bus boycott that was a real pivotal uh, moment in our history 
uh, in certain civil rights movement and Rosa Parks, uh, Rosa Parks Museum, as a matter of fact, there is. And of course, Dr. King's first pastorate was in Montgomery, Alabama as well. Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. So we'll get a chance to kind of see that. And his home there, the Parsonage, was where you may recall that uh, his home was bombed uh, a couple of times. Uh, and so we'll get a chance to actually see the pavement still shows that bomb imprint there. So we'll get a chance to see that as well. We'll leave then Montgomery, headed down then to Selma, Alabama, ground zero for the voters' right movement uh, and the famous Bloody Sunday march across the Evan Pettus Bridge. And we'll get a chance to actually reenact that march across the Evan Pettus Bridge as well. And meet some of the persons who were there. There's actually a voters' right museum there uh, in Selma. We'll get a chance then to go to the, through that museum and relive through the words and voices, by the way, of those who were actually there. And so we're very excited about that as well. We'll leave there, headed down then to Birmingham, Alabama, and get a chance then to sort of see where, again, young people really took over the movement. Uh, our adults had gone as, as far as they could possibly go. And so Birmingham really represented an opportunity then for those young people to get involved and get engaged uh, in the movement and really carried it forward. And unfortunately, the four girls who were killed at 16th Street Baptist Church uh, happened also there in Birmingham. And there's a civil rights museum located there as well that you get a chance to sort of look at all this in the perspective of the times uh, in the city of Birmingham. Call it one point in time, Bombingham. Now, I know this is, as I mentioned, this is your third time doing this trip. Are, are, will people who travel with you see different? Uh, because there's a ton of civil rights landmarks and historical places uh, throughout the South and, and, and actually, uh, you know, Midwest and uh, uh, Northeast. Why these specific places, and are they different from the places you've traveled before? Uh, there'll be similar places for those uh, who have gone on previous tours with us, but what we find every time, it's like a picture. When you look at the first time, you have one impression. You can go back to that same picture and see yet another impression. And there's so much to take in, and so you can't possibly in one visit take all this in at the various spots along the way. We chose these specific spots because of their significance in the movement. Uh, there were other very important places as well, as you talked about a minute ago. But these specific places were real watermarks in each of the various issues that faced the civil rights movement participants and those of us who are enjoying the benefits of those efforts today. Uh, the issue, of course, uh, in Birmingham, uh, as I said before, was this issue of, again, youth involvement. And, and the people felt paralyzed in that city. Uh, the issue in Selma was, of course, voters' rights. Uh, the issue, of course, uh, in Montgomery was public transportation and public accommodations. And so these are some of the key issues we felt were important to people be able to clearly understand who was really behind moving those issues forward for this country. So that's why they are chosen. So while they are the same sort of stops we make along the way, we're finding new ways of looking at them and new ways of having them visit upon us and our spirit. And then after, after uh, Montgomery, I think that was uh, where we left off. Where will you well, head to next? down to, again, the place where it kind of all culminates, uh, and unfortunately in a very negative way initially, uh, again, going down to Memphis, Tennessee, and the Lorraine Motel. A good chance to kind of see where Dr. King was slain, uh, and a very eerie kind of piece. And we go to the actual book uh, uh, window where uh, James Earl Ray allegedly stood and look through the window and to see his vantage point as he allegedly stood in the bathtub of the bathroom of the room he was in and look right across to Dr. King's room. And you could actually see what he must have seen through the sight of his rifle at that point in time. Uh, it's a very eerie kind of thing. And, and we look across and see that vantage point 
And I often thought to myself, what was he thinking? What was the motivation here? And of course, it's all kind of conspiracy uh, sort of ideas about what took place and what didn't take place. But you come face to face with this thing at one point in time. I've gone on a trip down some five times for me personally. But every time I go, something different happens to me. I'm getting renewed. Uh, my efforts become uh, intensified because now I understand that there were so many people whose names I will never ever know who have allowed me today to enjoy from my way of living in it. Those sacrifices of people. And that to me is a treasure. And that's why, again, you know, uh, this is a, a pilgrimage for me. I hope it becomes that for others who may be able to go along with us. And they get a real chance to see that so many of us from every race and every culture, various religions, uh, geographical parts of this country all came together and said what was going on then was just not right. We can do something about that. Mm-hmm. And we did. Now, what dates does this trip take Again, place? It is April the 18th to the 23rd. Um, once persons can go on our website uh, for Montgomery County, that is uh, www.montgomerycounty.gov, uh, and just go to the Human Rights link, uh, our department, and you'll be able then to see all the details for the trip uh, at that point in time. But I should tell you, too, that once you, in fact, uh, stop, go along with us and pay the fee that's uh, uh, required to go, you would have covered the cost of your motel stay for four nights, uh, all transportation costs, all uh, entries into the various venues and museums along the way, uh, two meals, uh, and two breakfasts along the way as well. So it, we think it's a very, very attractive package and, and uh, a great, great uh, opportunity to really relive history. And as we go along the route, we'll be looking at documentaries and films and videos and teaching and sharing. And so this is a total educational experience. It's not a sightseeing tour. This is an educational experience. Mm-hmm. And, and is this uh, trip open to uh, adults-only families? And, and what's the price of the trip? Uh, great question. It is open to everyone. Uh, we're hoping that whole families will go. Uh, we're hoping then that uh, young people will go who may not uh, have had these experiences themselves, but may be studying about them. What a wonderful opportunity to touch some of the history and to some of the people who were there making the history. Uh, so for them, it would be a very attractive opportunity as well. College students who may be studying this uh, part of the, our history as well. Um, the costs range from about $470 up to $590, depending upon, again, your accommodations, the, the highest price being for those who want a single accommodation. And then uh, we have a situation where you can actually have four to a room. That's a cheaper price. But the specific details can be found on the website. Uh, and we've got in place even a payment plan for those who want to pay a little bit now and pay a little bit later. So that can happen as well. We really want you to go with us. So come along and get on the bus. Now, one last question. I understand that this is, uh, in some parts, a uh, collaborative effort with uh, an organization in Ohio and North Carolina. So for people listening outside of the metro Washington, D.C. area, how can they become involved uh, with this trip? Uh, just simply again go to our website uh, and uh, again www uh, again montgomerycountymd.gov and go to the human rights link our department you'll find out about our trip directly but in that will also be details about the trips coming out of Ohio and also coming out of North Carolina our good friends down in North Carolina as a matter of fact gentleman by the name of Bruce Leitner uh, is a person who sort of really began this process for us and and has shared that with us uh, uh, and when I was in Ohio uh, and we certainly, from Ohio, then brought the idea to uh, Montgomery County. 
And so we now are, uh, hopefully one day, is to have all of us have had a chance to go back and have the same experience would be what we would, would be our desire. So at any rate, we're excited about that. So if you're in the greater Washington area, uh, come on, go with us. Uh, if you're along the route, we'll pick you up as we go down the road. Uh, and if you're closer to some of the other areas we mentioned, whether it be North Carolina or uh, Columbus, Ohio, is where it's coming out of there in that state, uh, we can certainly get you in contact with those individuals and be able then to get you registered to go along with that group as well. So get on the bus. Well, Director Stowe, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed our show today. And as always, we look forward to spending quality time with you throughout the week. And uh, you can follow us, you know, in real time on all of our social networks, including Facebook, or take us on the go through our free mobile app, Stitcher, all which you can find on our website at worldfootprints.com. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we'll see you on the air again next week, same time, same frequency. And until then, we wish you blue skies and purposeful travel that leaves positive footprints one step at a time. Hi, guys. My name is Sandy Best, the Sandy Best from Lake Louise. Where's Lake Louise? It's in Alberta. Alberta's in Canada. Banff National Park, natural beauty. The only place you should go with is World Footprints Radio because they spend their time looking at those special places that are not tourist traps, that are not thousands of people. For the best on the planet, go with World Footprints Radio. World Footprints Radio is a presentation of Travel and On Media Productions, LLC. All rights reserved.